Good morning. We'd like to welcome you all here this morning, those of us who remembered the time change. Here we are. Perhaps others will join us in approximately 50 minutes. Please stand and join us as we lift our hearts and our voices in praise to our God and as we continue to awake, (laughs) awaken.
Father, we are in awe of you today, of your power, and of your mercy. We thank you for being present with us in our worship today, and our prayer is that we would be sensitive to you, to your spirit, that our attitudes, our thoughts would bring honor and glory to you in this hour together. Thank you for the privilege of coming together in worship today. And we offer this time to you. We pray it through Christ. Amen. Take a few moments and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Morning again. couple of things to uh, mention to you that in the bulletin, Wednesday evening, our regular ministries for uh, children, youth, and adults. Tuesday night uh, is the, the movie that we've been talking about the last few weeks. It's connected to Royal Family Kids Camp, and you see the information in there about that Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock in Wesley Chapel. And next Sunday morning, uh, worship at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11, and we'll be thinking about uh, the temptation of hypocrisy about our worship. As we look a little further along in the story of uh, those last hours of Jesus' life. We uh, always have things to pray about. We want to pray for concerns and burdens related to us uh, directly here as well as things around the world. And we ask for God's grace and mercy in each of those situations. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of John, chapter 19. If you have a pew Bible or would like to look on in the pew Bible, that's page 1072. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him. Again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Jesus answered, You take, excuse me, but Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. 
But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate asked. Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. I will invite the ushers to come forward for the morning offering, and children ages 2 through 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. Jesus, it's all. 
forever the hope in my heart. To spend some time praying together, if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you come and pray, please join me. Father, we come today recognizing all that you have done for us in Christ. And the difference that the coming of Christ, the death of Christ means for our lives. We come today with a whole lot of stuff in our hearts our minds. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, in the power of Christ, heal our diseases, be present in our grief. We pray for everyone connected to us who is feeling a sense of loss, a sense of dread, overwhelmed by life. May they know your presence every moment. We pray for people dealing with injury and disease, surgery, treatments, all the other kinds of difficulties that come to us. Pour out your healing grace. We pray for each person whose life is marked by disappointment, unfulfilled dreams, uncertainty about the future, all of those elements of life that cause us to worry, fear, doubt. Reveal your goodness that has been difficult to see. We pray for each person who is feeling heartbroken by a relationship that's gone sour, maybe has escalated to bitterness or hatred. Fill our heart with Christ's spirit of forgiveness and patience, of mercy, truth, and hope. 
We continue to pray for the burdens of our world, people who live with no idea where their next meal or clean drinking water will come from, who are displaced from their homes and live in grave danger. Those who live in fear and uncertainty because of violence and war, for leaders of governments who are attempting to rule with justice and righteousness but find it so difficult. Bring your spirit to bear in grace and mercy and hope and life and love. Father, we pray that you will speak to us the word of Christ. Help us to hear him calling us to follow the way of the cross. Turn us from self-centered living to Christ-centered living. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in the world and to be your servants wherever and however you may need us. Use us to touch the lives of others. Let the Spirit of Christ be so evident in our lives as we surrender ourselves to you again. And we pray this through Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who teaches us the motto for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. we sing together. More than just another song, more than one more melody, maybe what we need is Lord, we 
to understand what makes you weep, to understand what makes you sing and smile. This will be our life's one quest, to seek the one whose love has sought us, gazing on your shining ears to hear as you speak to us as we continue in worship. Amen. connection between the church and the state? How do we live as Christians in a world that is not Christian? In, in, a, in a nation that is really not Christian? How, how do we make a connection? How do we, how do we bear witness to Christ in, in this world of politics and power and all of the dynamics of life that keep coming at us. These questions, these these concerns, this whole issue is, is being played out on the scene in the scene that we have 
just read about as Jesus' life is nearing its conclusion. The religious leaders want to execute Jesus. They are threatening. He is threatening them. And, and so they, they want to execute him. They want to bring his life to an end. But they can't do it themselves. They need the, the state to take that action. And so they are spend, they spend time trying to convince the Roman governor, trying to convince Pilate that Jesus should be executed. And Pilate really isn't buying it. Pilate keeps coming out and saying, I can't find anything wrong with him. And he wants to release him. And they keep saying, no, you've got to execute him. And they try to threaten Pilate. And eventually, Pilate comes out this last time. And Jesus, he is, Jesus has been beaten. He is bloody and bruised. And Pilate says, here's your king. And their response is, crucify him. And Pilate stands here next to this, this innocent man, and he says, you want me to crucify your king? And out of the mouths of the religious leaders comes one of the most incredible statements you find in all of Scripture. Out of the mouths of these Jewish religious leaders, the people who have been entrusted to, to lead Israel in their worship of God, out of their mouths comes this statement, we have no king but Caesar. It, it's amazing. In, in many ways, they are, they are turning their backs on, on the whole messianic prophecy. They, they are basically saying, we don't want to have anything to do with the Messiah. We don't want to have anything to do with, with God. We don't have anything to do with, the, with God and his kingdom. They just want to see Jesus executed. And they'll do anything to make that happen. Now the rejection of God as king doesn't start in that moment. I mean, you can actually see it all the way back in the Old Testament. In the book of 1 Samuel... Uh, Samuel's life is, is nearing its end. He's been the leader of Israel. And, and as God brought Israel out of Egypt, they've been led by appoint, people that God has appointed. Judges, we tend to call them. And, and at this point, Samuel has appointed his sons to, to take over when he dies. And his sons are, are not real godly men. And the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, look... We've noticed all the other nations around us have kings. We'd like to have a king too. And Samuel's immediate response is to feel rejected. He feels this personal sense of rejection. And God steps in and says to them, says to Samuel, look, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They have said, I don't, we don't want God as our king. We want an earthly king. And from that moment on, they are fighting with God about leadership. And eventually, that idea of rejecting God as king comes to a head here, standing outside of Pilate's palace, when they declare, we have no king but Caesar. And they turn their backs in that one statement on all the messianic prophecies and hopes and dreams that God has given them. 
They are so enamored with executing Jesus. They are so enamored with getting rid of this man who is a, who is a burr into their saddle that they will reject the greatest promise of God to them as a people in order to see it happen. And they will make a pact with the powers that be to make it happen. And we read that story and, and we shake our heads and think, how in the world could they possibly do that? How could they make that statement? How could they make that declaration? How could they turn their backs on everything God has done? And the reality is, what they do openly, we are continually tempted to do subtly. Now, I doubt if any of us are going to stand up and say, we have no king but Caesar. And yet, in the way we live our lives and the decisions that we make and the priorities that we set for our lives, we are continually tempted to say we have no king but money, wealth. We have no king but success. We have no king but our work. We have no king but relationships. We have no king but independence. We have no king but power. We have no king but being right. I mean, take whatever you want. Pick, pick anything that, that we struggle with, any place where we're tempted. And, and we are continually tempted to struggle with the idea of replacing God as king of our lives. And it may not be as overt as these religious leaders standing there centuries ago, but it is just as dangerous. And it is as much of a struggle as a, and a temptation for every one of us to declare in one way or another, we have no king but... Something that replaces God at the center of our lives. And it seems to me that as I think about the church and our connection to the world and, and to governments and to powers, that it is an especially difficult temptation for us. Like the Israel, like the religious leaders centuries ago, we become so enamored with our agenda, with the things that we want to see happen, that we make alliances and we make declarations that, if we really think about it, are completely contrary to the things of God's kingdom. Somewhere in our thinking, we have come to believe. That, that it's power that moves this world. We are continually tempted to believe that if we could just get enough power, then we could see things happen in this world. 
And, and you see that coming out in the ways in which we view government and the way we view power in, in government and in, our, and in the society. I mean, we just came through a, a, a huge presidential election. And as, the, as we were build up to that election, how many times did you hear, how many times did we think if we could just get the right person elected, it would change the landscape of our nation? If we could just get the right person in office, then finally the, the Christian agenda could be realized. And it doesn't matter which side of the, of the aisle you might be on, people on both sides were saying it. If we could just get this person in office, and it wouldn't have to, it doesn't have to be presidential election. I hear it all the time with our, in our state government as well. If we just get the right people elected, if we just get the right people in power, then that will, that will change everything. Now, the reality is we want good moral people running our nation, running our state, leading our government. It's a whole lot better to have good moral people doing that than immoral evil people doing that. I don't think we have any argument about that. And if we do, then we have a whole other discussion that we need to have. But somewhere in the back of our minds, there is this, there is this belief that, that we can manipulate politics in such a way that, that we can change the landscape of morality and of culture and society. And somewhere underneath all of that is a subtle declaration that it is earthly power that moves the world. And we forget that the cross is continually calling us not to trust in earthly power, but to trust in God to move the world. To trust in God to, to see things change and to see things happen. And as, as helpful sometimes as government can be, and God certainly does work through government. We see that throughout the scriptures. How God works through people, whether they're godly people and sometimes completely immoral people. God accomplishes his purposes. But the reality is, no matter who's in power, no matter who's in control, whether it be the godly King David in Israel or the ungodly Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, God is the one who is moving things in the world. God is the one who is in control. And it's not a bad thing to be involved in politics. In fact, like I said, we ought to have good moral people in, in leadership, in politics, in government, in power. That, that's a good thing. But it is so difficult in those positions to, it's so, it's actually, I should say, it's so easy to move from using power for good to just being enamored with power. And that is the subtle temptation, not just for the people who have the power, but for the people who want to use the power. And the church has a long history of falling into that trap. 
of believing that we have the right to use our power to, to promote our agenda, even at the, at the expense of hurting people, even killing people. Because somehow we have come to believe that we can justify it. And that having that power will change things and move the world. What disturbs me about my own mindset and about what I see and hear and read in other Christians' mindset is that far too often when we are enamored with power, it is predominantly about what I would call Christian entitlement. A lot of the stuff that we are trying to accomplish is is really about our rights. It's about getting what we want. It's about making life easier, softer, more comfortable for us. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. But I do see that a lot and I recognize it in myself. I have a tendency to support people who I think are going to make my life easier and better. And there is this subtle temptation underneath all of this grasping for power that it's really about us. I mean, that's certainly what's going on here with the religious leaders. They're willing to mortgage their whole messianic hope and future in order to make life easier for themselves. Because they, their, their agenda, getting rid of Jesus, is driving everything that happens. And often it is about trying to, to keep ourselves comfortable and getting, making our lives easy that drives the decisions that we make. It's subtle. And it's, it's hard to not want that. And we justify it by saying, well, it's about, you know, it's about the truth. It's about what's right. And, and that's probably true. But somewhere underneath that, there is this sense that it's really about us more than anything else. And God is calling us through the cross to a different mindset. To a mindset that's not about us and our rights and what makes life easy and comfortable for us, but instead about a willingness to sacrifice. About a willingness to care about others before ourselves. I'm thinking back to to some of the stories in the Old Testament where God allowed his people to to come into places of power in governments, particularly in foreign governments. You think about about Daniel and, and, and Daniel's unwillingness to bend, even though... It, in, it means that he ends up spending the night in a lion's den. And, and Daniel isn't about protecting his rights. He's about doing what is right, even when it costs him dearly. I suspect that if Daniel were living in the 21st century, he, 
and, and, and the, the threat was made on him going into the lion's den, it wouldn't surprise me if Daniel would file a lawsuit in order to keep that from happening. Hey, you're impinging on my right to worship. Because isn't that what we're tempted to do? Isn't that what everybody does? Isn't that the the mindset that we take? And a lot of times what we're looking for is not the freedom to worship. and, And let me say, that is such a wonderful blessing that we have. That we can come together like this and we can worship and the freedom is is awesome and we give thanks to God for that. But we go it goes way beyond that. Of protecting the things that that make life easy for us and comfortable luxuries for us. And what if we were to lose those things? How would we respond to that? What would happen if, if gradually our, our freedom to worship was eroded? How, how, do we, how would we respond to that? Maybe we would respond like the majority of our brothers and sisters in this world who often don't have the freedom to worship. Our brothers and sisters in so many places of the world who come together for worship at great risk. But do it anyway. And if we're going to connect with government, if we're going to think about how powers work in this world and our connection to them, the one thing we ought to be thinking about is not so much what it means for us, but what does it mean for the people who have no voice in this world? For the people who are on the fringes of society, for the people who are disenfranchised from any kind of power. For the people who are most vulnerable in this world. Is what we're doing, the stands that we take and the positions that we take and the battles that we fight, are are they primarily about us or about others? Are they primarily about protecting our rights or thinking about the rights of people who have no voice in this world, who are most vulnerable in this world, who are most innocent in this world. What about them? And really what it comes down to for us is a willingness to see our connection to power in the light of the cross. Every way in which we think about the church and the state, every way in which we think about our lives and power in this world ought to be seen in the shadow of the cross. And that's hard for us because in the shadow of the cross, we're going to be called to self-sacrifice. We're called to, to see that in this world, We love even if it means we lose rather than not loving so that we can win. A.W. Tozer once said that we live in a a really strange 
dangerous spiritual world right now. And this was 50 years ago he wrote this. Everyone is satisfied and happy that Jesus, he said, has done all the sorrowing, all the suffering, all the dying. And we're glad to let Jesus do it. But the cross calls us to follow Jesus. Earlier this week, Cindy and I were, were driving uh, to Buffalo and, and on the way we passed a church that had one of those big signs on it where people you know, put little pithy sayings. And as we drove by, it just jumped out at me. I said to Cindy, of course I was driving, I said, write this down. It said this, it will cost you nothing to believe and everything not to. It will cost you nothing to believe and everything not to. When I read that, I thought to myself, that's not just wrong, that's heresy. It will cost you nothing to believe? I mean, only in a a country like this would that thought even cross someone's mind. That it will cost you nothing to believe? I mean, the reality is it should cost us and it will cost us everything to believe. Because the call of the cross is self-sacrifice. It's giving up ourselves. It's surrendering our lives to the king. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the question is not how little can we give up and still follow Jesus. The question is how much can I give of myself every day in gratitude for what Jesus has done for me? That's what it means to be the church That's what it means to bear witness. That's what sets us apart from all of the structures of power in our world that keep telling us we define success by what you can get, what you can grasp, how much power you can hang on to. And we need to hear Christ calling us to something different. Greg Boyd once wrote, The greatest power on the planet is self-sacrificial love. For For when God wants to flex his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo or Terminator or any of the the power structures of this world. It looks like a cross. And you and I are called to take up our cross and follow him. Heavenly Father, 
you know that this is a hard word for us? It's hard for me. I like ease. I like comfort. Give us grace and give us strength to hear the call of Christ to lay down our lives have no king but you. Let it identify us as your people. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. And never be known. 
Take all my hunger for all that's forbidden, every desire and sin I keep hidden. Search me and know me, I want to bring to you a life that is holy and sanctified through you. So grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.